So, good evening, Sangha. Can you all hear me? Is it good back there? <laughs> it's kind of too loud, huh? How's that? Great. So, tonight I am going to talk about forgiveness. I might talk about joy at the end. You know, when the Buddha was walking around back in the day, they used to call him and his peeps the happy people. (laughs) You know, we see all those laughing Buddhas. There's a reason why there is an image of a laughing Buddha and why it's so prominent. (coughs) There is a lot of joy. And one way to open to the joy is to practice forgiveness. So I want to first talk about a story when you look up forgiveness in the Buddhist texts. It's interesting, this one sutta comes up a lot, and that is the Angulimala Sutta. I'm sure many of you know the Angulimala Sutta but I will cover it a little bit. So, there's once this little boy who lived in India, and he was actually quite a smart little kid. And his name was, his name was Ahimsaka, Ahimsaka. And many of you who know Pali, I'm sure many of you in here know Pali, know ahimsa means um, empathy, or it's an expression of nonviolence. So Ahimsaka was a young boy, and he uh, actually went to this one school, and he was really smart, and a lot of his fellow students were really jealous of him because he was really smart. He was in the AP Dharma class. (laughs) And sometimes when you're in the AP class, your peeps don't like that. So they told the the teachers and the leaders of the school that he was plotting against them. He said, uh, they told them that Ahimsaka, he has really got some stuff up his sleeve and he wants to take down the school, so you better be careful. So uh, the teachers believed all this, you know, deception from these other students. And they uh, plotted a way to get rid of, uh, to get rid of this young student. They told him, in order to graduate, there's one uh, big uh, thesis that you have to do. We want you to collect a thousand fingers before you can graduate. So being a really good student, and maybe at the time not realizing the implications of this task he was given by his uh, teachers, he went out and started to try to collect a thousand fingers. And um, as you might imagine, you can't go up to somebody and say, hey, can I have one of your fingers? So in the course of trying to fulfill this task he was given in order to graduate, he turned into this wretched killer. He was a murderer. And actually, uh, during this time, his name changed. His name changed from the empathetic one to uh, the thousand-finger killer. And that is uh, the name Angulimala. So he became known as Angulimala. So Angulimala was out and he was collecting his fingers and he actually would he actually created a necklace of all of these fingers that he collected in his murderous rages and he had them around his neck so as you can imagine he was just a fearsome sight out and he was known to be a merciless killer but it was interesting because he never stole from anybody that he killed he just would kill them and take his finger and put it around their neck so um So one day the Buddha was out, as the Buddha does, he goes out and he uh, has his bowl and he's going out for his alms round for his food. 
and he goes to uh, this one place, and all of the all of the um, lay people who would normally give the Buddha and his disciples food, they were all inside. And uh, the Buddha knocked on a door, and, and the people inside said, "Come in, come in." And Gulimala is around, so we really can't go outside, but come in, and we'll give you some food. So the Buddha was thinking, "Oh, and Gulimala." I'm going to go see this guy. So he got some food and then he went outside and um, Angulimala was just looking around. There is, in you know, one of the suttas in the story, this was the, uh, Angulimala had collected 999 fingers. And this was his last <laughs> finger. And um, so Angulimala caught up to the Buddha and he said, Buddha, he said, you over there, you stop. And the Buddha was just seemed to be walking in his regular pace, and Angulimala would run over to him, but he could never catch up with him. And then, you know, he ran over to where the Buddha was, and then he noticed the Buddha was like really far in front of him on the other side. And he yelled up to the Buddha, and he said, you up there, you better stop. And he ran as fast as he could up to the Buddha. And then when he got up to the Buddha, he noticed the Buddha was again far away from him. (laughs) And he couldn't catch up to him. And um, when uh, Angulimala caught up to the Buddha, he walked alongside him and said, I told you to stop, monk, why don't you stop? And the Buddha continued to walk as he said, Angulimala, I stopped a long time ago. It is you who has not stopped. And Angulimala, you know, usually people meeting Angulimala were just terrified of him. And, you know, he looked at the Buddha into the Buddha's eyes and the Buddha's eyes were like two stars. And he saw such love and compassion and ease, you know, not a hint of fear in the Buddha's eyes. And um, the Buddha was actually looking at him like he was a relative, like this was his brother or his uh, relative. And uh, and Gulimala said, uh, are you the Buddha? Are you the Buddha that I've heard about? And the Buddha said, yes, I am the Buddha. And, uh, and Gulimala was really just taken by the ease of the Buddha. And he said, oh, I sure wish that I had met you a while ago. I am just too far gone. I would have loved to have met you maybe at my 10th finger or even the 100th finger. (laughs) But right now, you know, I'm at 999 fingers. You know, it is just too late for me. (laughs) And uh, the Buddha said, no, that's not true, Angulimala. It's not true. Um, he said, you know, you have done this because people have, uh, you know, you got duped into doing this. You know, I understand why you did this and you thought that this was part of your path. You know, you acted out of ignorance and you acted out of, and that ignorance turned into a lot of aggression and hate and aversion. And you built up these, you know, qualities of hate and aversion in your mind, but you didn't know any better. You just didn't realize what was happening. And um, so the uh, Buddha said, No Angulimala, it is never too late to do a good act. What good good act could I possibly do, uh, Bhante, he asked the Buddha. And the Buddha said, Stop traveling the road of hatred and violence. That would be the greatest act of all. Angulimala thought, uh, Through the sea of suffering is immense, look back and you will see the shore. The Buddha said, the sea of suffering is immense, but if you look, you will see the shore. And, um, you know, uh, how can I live in peace? I've just killed so many people. And the Buddha said, no, Angulimala, I will protect you. If you come and take robes right now and join the monks, we can do some purification. So the Angulimala immediately threw himself on the Buddha's, at the Buddha's feet, and, you know, put his sword aside and said, I'm willing to join you. So for the next 10 days, it only took 10 days, Angulimala took up the practice of the precepts. He got, you know, sworn in as a monk. He took up the practice of the precepts. He learned the practice exactly what we're all doing here. He started practicing satipatthana. 
and uh, the way of just being humble. And he, you know, is said to have made a really excellent and great effort. And then after only two weeks, he got his old name back, and Gulimala became Ahimsaka, again, the nonviolent one. And, you know, they say that next to the Buddha, he was the one that actually had the most serenity and peace and loving kindness in his heart, just after two weeks. And um, so uh, at the time, there was a king, of course, in this land. And the king came riding up with some of his, um, with some of his, uh, you know, military people. And um, uh, the Buddha asked him, Majesty, has another kingdom invaded your borders? And the king replied, No, Buddha. The murder Angulimala is in danger to is a danger to every man, woman, and child here, and we are out to find Angulimala. And the Buddha said, um, "So, if you were to see Angulimala, and he had transformed his life, would you be able to put your sword aside? Would you be able to forgive him?" And uh, you know, the king, who was a very big fan of the Buddha, said, well, I would really have to see it for my own eyes. And so the uh, Buddha said, here is Ahimsaka, you know, the gentle one, the empathetic one who used to be Angulimala. And that is one of the most important stories in the Buddha suttas about forgiveness. Uh, they say that, you know, uh, actually, during the course of the Buddha's life, Angulimala became fully enlightened. He actually became a, uh, an arhat. But, many of you probably know, that he still had a lot of people who were pretty angry at him. So he would go out, you know, uh, begging for food at alms rounds, and people would throw rocks at him, and, you know, they would actually treat him pretty badly. And he totally surrendered to the fact that although he had freed himself from greed, hatred, and delusion, and that he had become, he had become a fully enlightened one, he still had karma. His karma was not totally spent. And he still uh, was, uh, you know, lived under some suspicion and a lot of hate and anger of the people that he had victimized. So what does the story tell us about, um, what does it tell us about forgiveness from a Buddhist perspective? One thing it uh, tells us that was important or really resonated with me, that the present is not imprisoned by the past. I think a second thing is that karma is not an immutable sentence. And then that the forces of ignorance can be subdued by compassion. Um, So I was crowdsourcing, you know, I'm a big crowdsourcer, and I was crowdsourcing this talk in the staff dining room. And there were some really excellent perspectives that I just want to bring out. So I was talking to some of the teachers about the story of Angulimala. And Chaz pointed out, you know, my point was that, um, you know, in Christian and Jewish and Islamic and other religions, it's the higher being that grants forgiveness. And maybe through that grace or that compassion or something, humans can grant forgiveness to each other. But we really don't have that. We don't really have that in our Buddhist, in our Buddhist traditions. And um, I thought that w- that's a really significant difference. And um, I was talking about that to Chaz, and he said, "Well, he said, but um, you know, one thing that I like to point out about the story of Angulimala is that uh, any one of us would have been like those." Um, people in the town that would close their doors when we knew Angulimala was around, right? We would totally, he would be locked up, right? I mean, if he lived right now, he would have been shot by the cops in the street, 
You know, they wouldn't have even tried to lock him up. They would have totally, he would have gotten his knife out to cut somebody's finger off and bang, bang, he would be gone. But uh, Chaz pointed out, I think rightfully so, that, you know, the Buddha still had Angulimala in his heart. The Buddha did not throw him out of his heart. That is a huge tall order. I think, uh, you know, in this instance, the Buddha offered reconciliation. Uh, it's not something that we all have to do, and I'll talk a little bit about that later in forgiveness. Forgiveness and reconciliation are really two very different processes. But um, I just thought that was a really important thing to, to mention that all of these people who are cutting off our fingers and you know, we, we can still hold them in our heart. So this is what uh, Sharon Salzberg says about forgiveness in her wonderful book, Loving Kindness, which as we all know is about all the four Brahma Viharas, not just about Metta. Anyway, she says... When our minds are full of anger and hatred towards others, in fact, we are the ones who are actually suffering, caught in this mind state. But it is not so easy to access that place inside of us which can forgive, which can love. In some ways, to be able to forgive, to let go, is a type of dying. It is the ability to say, I am not that person anymore, and you are not that person anymore. Forgiveness allows us to recapture some part of ourselves that was left behind in bondage to a past event. Some part of, of our identity may also need to die in that letting go so that we can reclaim the energy bound up in the past. So it's a kind of I, death of a victimized identity. This was very meaningful to me because it was sitting exactly where you guys are sitting some time back, m me doing this retreat, that I had, um, so I'll tell you the story. So I was sitting this retreat, I think it was maybe, it was 10 years ago, 11 years ago, and uh, there was a wonderful uh, assistant teacher, and it was around... It was around um, Columbus Day. And she gave this Dharma talk about how uh, our adventure, internal adventure, could be likened to or was analogous to Christopher Columbus. And how he, you know, braved all of the dangers and unknown to conquer the new world. And as many of you know, I'm an indigenous person, a mixed-race indigenous person who, you know, lives in the indigenous world for much of my life. And it really just sent me into a big tizzy. I had a panic attack, you know. I thought that we were being invaded. You know how you get when you're really sensitive, right? <laughs> it can happen. You can spin out in all of these these stories, and um, but it actually was a really excellent thing that happened. I mean, talk about being, you know, grateful to the people who really push your buttons and push your boundaries. I realized within the next couple of weeks just what a huge victim identity I had. You know, I had this identity of being a victim of colonization and being a victim of the invasion. And, you know, those things are all still absolutely true, but I don't necessarily have to be a victim of them. You know, it was a really huge letting go of, of this sense of um, just powerlessness and a sense of fear and a sense of having no agency that I didn't even know I had. I didn't even know that that was a part of my uh, really unconscious identity. It was one of those, um, you know, unconscious, um, 
mental torments or legacies that the Buddha talks about. You know, I saw it as just a sense of lack of agency. It's hard to even put words on it that I wasn't safe to express myself no matter how well I did it or delicately I did it. It's that my voice was just not appropriate in a lot of venues. And when I was able to see that, it was an energetic field that often was what I swam in. I didn't see it because it was really, you know, it was like almost ubiquitously present in me. And when I was able to see it, you know, because of this event, it was like a shock to me. It was like, wow, that's self-pity. That's what self-pity looks like. And with mindfulness, I was able to really put a pretty big... um, frame around it. That's the words I like to use. I was able to really put a frame around this just heavy sense of uh, having no ability to act in the world where I was safe and I was able to decondition it. You know, it still comes up. It's still part of, you know, my repertoire of afflictive emotions, but you know, I have been able through this practice and through this wonderful training to really free myself a lot of it. And I don't know if I forgave anybody, really. I mean, I could see that um, my mother, who, you know, is still alive and hanging around, has it a lot. And I think I might have mentioned this before that, you know, I learned it in part from her because she felt like she had no agency. And, you know, when she was 85, I started pointing out to her where her self-pity was, and it deconditioned in her at 85, at, you know, between 80 and 85. So, um, so um, the point I'm trying to make here is that Uh, this sense of forgiveness, maybe to even forgive myself for feeling that way, or, you know, I I think about the forces that are still very true, the colonization still happened, there is absolutely still racism and sexism in the world, and that has impacted me, but that's how dukkha shows up for me. You know, we all have dukkha. We all have dukkha. And that's one of the ways it shows up for me. And I can make that other people's problem and not necessarily my personal problem. It's definitely my problem when I join with others to eradicate it, but I don't, you know, I can come at it with a lot more gentleness, a lot more understanding of, you know, the roots of that. Tara Brock talks about, you know, the roots of a lot of the suffering that's imposed on us. She says, imagine you are walking in the woods and you see a little dog under a tree. You are about to go pet it, but the dog uh, lurches at you and its fangs are bared. So you go from wanting to pet the dog to feeling angry at it because it's going to attack you. Then you see that the dog's leg is in a trap and your feelings change again to, to concern for the dog. So thinking about all of the times that we have been victims of other people's greed, hatred, and delusion, or we have been perpetrators of greed, hatred, and delusion, can we, can we see the dog's leg in the trap? Can we open to the common humanity of that, of the first noble truth? You know, the, His Holiness the Dalai Lama says that we all just want to be happy. And we all want to leave behind our suffering. And there are just crazy ways that we think that we're going to do that. And for me, um, I like to think about, 
what are the identities? You know, I guess I'm still on this mana thing. <laughs> the conceit and mana, these identities that are created when we're either the victims or perpetrators of greed, hatred, and delusion, which is really where the notion of forgiveness comes from, right? I was at a, um, I was at, I was given a talk up at, um, at uh, the um, Insight Meditation Center outside of Boston. It's that fancy one, what's it called? Cambridge, Cambridge yeah, that's right. Five minutes from Harvard, like, wow. <laughs> it was fancy. And um, <laughs> and uh, one, of the, uh, one of the wonderful yogis was talking about all he, all he had done to eradicate, to make a place that was very welcoming for everyone. And how come everybody didn't do that? And I thought, uh, I thought the notion came to my mind that until we're fully enlightened, we're all perpetrators. You know, I mean, I think we need to surrender to that. And to, until we're all fully enlightened, we're all perpetrators. And does anyone here have any intention to be a perpetrator? I mean, we all want to act with loving kindness and with generosity and with wisdom. And when we don't, it's because of some, you know, deeply held afflictive emotion that we're, you know, we have all come here. You have all, I'm so, you know, again, I'm going to smudge myself on you. And this means that I'm taking your good aura and just rubbing it on my body. (laughs) Someone asked me what this meant, so I just wanted to say. You know, the fact that you have gone to such lengths to to purify your mind and your heart, I mean, that's a huge thing. Even if you didn't have one moment here of what you thought was successful practice, you've done a lot of work here. You know, there's a lot of good going on. So thinking about... <clears throat> us being perpetrators or victims of, you know, the greed, hatred, and delusion of others, what are some of the identities that we take on? And I was looking at what are some of these things, these things that we can, we can take on. <clears throat> so, you know, we could be people with grievances. We're people with an axe to grind. We have an axe to grind. We have a bone to pick. We have a chip on our shoulder. We're insulted, affronted, victims of unfairness. We grumble, we grouse. We moan and we whine. We gripe. We have bitterness and resentment. We're people with grievances. We nurse our grievances. We're wronged, we're injured, we're ill. We're illed, we're affronted, we're insulted. We're the victims of indignity. And that's if we are on one side. So let's think about those places in ourselves that we are the victims. Maybe it's an ex, husband or wife or partner. He, she or they. Maybe it's a place at work that they didn't want us there. Maybe it was within our family of origins. Maybe we left home early. I remember um, Early in my career, I was doing some research on gender differences among Latinos in New Mexico, and I had a focus group. And I was asking these young women, um, do you feel like uh, the boys and girls in your home were treated equally? And they said, oh, yeah, there was no sexism in my home. And then I asked, well, what did your parents tell you about going to college? And they thought about it a second, and they said, hey, You know, they saved money for my brothers to go to college, but I never went to college. They never even bought me a pencil. 
You know, it's like ways in which we might have not been supported. So that's on one side of being the victim. And what are the identities with us as the perpetrators? Wow. We're culprits. We're crooks. I like the perpetrator myself. I'm a perp. (laughs) We have to surrender to that. Until we're fully enlightened, we are going to be we are going to be expressing greed, hatred, and delusion. We are going to be acting in those ways and harming others and ourselves. We are offenders. We are the violator. We are transgressors, trespassers. In some other traditions, we are a sinner, a crook, a culprit, a felon, a criminal. What are our, you know, what are our significant family and friends and uh, relatives call us? Let's think of a minute, too, how that, you know, how that has impacted us. What are our victim identities? And then there's a lot of identities we take on because we're just not even paying attention. Let's think about what makes us mad. Did you ever notice that when you blow in a dog's face, he gets mad at you, but when you take him in a car for a car ride, he sticks his head out the window? I mean, isn't it true that you'll take, you will take some actions from somebody and you'll consider it one way, but if it's somebody else, it's like got a totally different meaning to it. Um, I really love the Buddhist teachings about vipalasas, about distortions of, distortions of the mind-heart. You know, distortions of perception. You know, we only take in Uh, a little bit of actually what the environment has to offer us as far as what's happening in any moment. And based on, you know, what we take in, it's probably the negative things that we take in because of evolutionary psychology, right? We take in those things that are going to harm us. We take in those things that, you know, we might worry about, the saber-toothed tigers in the bushes. So we're taking in those things. That creates... You know, that creates thoughts in our minds and those thoughts turn into views and those views color how we see the place, how we see, you know, what we pay attention to in our perceptions and our views of things. And we don't even know if someone's blowing in our face or our head's out the window. So along those lines, Tara Brock says, as the Buddha taught, our habitual perceptions of self is a mental construct. The idea of an entity who causes things to happen, who is victimized, who controls the show. When we say, I accept myself as I am, we are not accepting a story about a good or bad self, Rather, we are accepting the immediate mental and sensory experiences we interpret as self. We are seeing the familiar wants and fears, the judging and planning thoughts as part of the flow of life. Accepting them in this way actually enables us to recognize that experience is impersonal and frees us from the trap of identifying ourselves as a deficient and limited self. You know, that was um, one of the things I learned while, um, one, uh, one of the, actually an excellent thing that I learned while researching this talk is that, 
you know, there are various ways to respond to respond to um, these identities that we create either as we hurt others or are hurt. But the highest way, one of the best way, is with the lens of emptiness. And that's what she's talking about here, a lens of emptiness. That it is, you know, it's a perpetrator perpetrating. And, you know, that's what the Buddha taught was how to how to uproot these defilements, how to, how to decondition these uh, uh, malevolent forces that, you know, are the habit patterns of our mind and heart. That's what, that's what we're doing here. And we're replacing them with positive, you know, mental factors, things that cause others and our self-happiness. And that's where forgiveness is. It's, you know, the other part of the Angulimala story was that the Buddha couldn't forgive Angulimala. Maybe the king did, but Angulimala had to do his own work, uh, own work of uprooting his defilements. You know, that's the only forgiveness. That's the only uh, reconciliation. It's, you know, when people do their work and when we do our work. So here are 12 principles connected with the process of forgiveness. And this is from our dear uh, friend and teacher, Jack Kornfield. The first one, he has 12 principles, so I'm going to give them to you. The first one is to understand what forgiveness is and what it is not. So... um, You know, he says that it's not a sentimental thing. It's not a papering over. And it's actually a process. It's not something that can usually be done in one minute. And it usually involves grief. Uh, I was very lucky to hang out with um, the Venerable Aya Ananda Bodhi recently. Does anybody know Aya Ananda Bodhi? She's wonderful. Boy, wow, she's deep. And, you know, she has this wonderful story of having left the Theravadan... Uh, Buddhist tradition because of its treatment of women and she's you know has started a nunnery of her own a monastery and she has the most love and has no bitterness at all it's so beautiful to see that she just couldn't do that anymore and she is starting you know a uh, a monastic community on her own and um, she says that what grief is Grief is, so this is your old reality and this is your new reality, right? And sometimes it's hard to go straight from the old reality to the new reality. And what grief is, is actually the process to get you down there. Just to be able to see the new reality. I thought that was really an excellent description of what maybe the process was like. And so... um, yeah, to understand what forgiveness is and is not. And it's not necessarily reconciliation. I went through a um, Desmond Tutu and his daughter. I don't know if many of you went through the forgiveness challenge that they have. And he's got some forgiveness cred, right? Desmond Tutu. And, um, you know, he forgave apartheid South Africa. That's a lot of forgiveness. He and Nelson Mandela. Talk about Forgiveness. So anyway, um, in the forgiveness challenge, um, you know, there's two, there are two arcs of forgiveness, or there are two arcs of uh, being harmed. One arc is that you are, are, you're harmed, and you um, say what your uh, grievance is, and, you know, there's no uh, potential for any reconciliation, and you don't realize that, uh, you know, there's no common humanity in what's happened to you or in the perpetration, and you just get angry and angrier, and you decide to retaliate, and you become part of that vicious cycle of hurt and grievance. And in a forgiveness cycle, what happens is, you're, you're, you know, the victim of some injustice and you state very clearly what the injustice was and you let people know, these are my boundaries. This can't happen again. I don't want this to happen. These are my boundaries. 
And you realize the common humanity in the greed, hatred, and delusion that we are all perpetrators. Until full enlightenment, we are all perpetrators. And we can decide whether this is an authentic expression of, uh, you know, an apology from the other group or person. We recognize the common humanity of it. And this is the part I like that I thought was an innovation, is you decide whether you want to continue with that relationship or not. And you could decide, it's not authentic enough for me, there's not enough uprooting of greed, hatred, and delusion there, and uh, I forgive you, but there's not going to be a lot of reconciliation right here. And actually the Vinaya, the Buddhist teachings on how to live as a community, actually have that as one of the steps in living together. You have to state what the grievance is, and you have to have a common understanding about what the standard of being together is. You know, that's a very legitimate thing to have, and if you don't come to that understanding, it's probably not a safe place to be. Boy, I'm almost out of time and I've only got to the first one. And I was so worried that I didn't have enough stuff to talk about. (laughs) Number two. Sensing the suffering in yourself of still holding on to this lack of forgiveness for yourself or for another. You know, that's what our mindfulness does. It extracts the wisdom and it extracts out of the situation what's really happening. So all we need to see is the suffering of it. When we see the suffering of the lack of forgiveness or the sense of victimization or the sense of having done wrong, you know, wisdom sees the suffering of that and wisdom will help us let go or wisdom will let go. Three, reflect on the benefits of a loving heart. And this is directly out of the suttas. It says that if you have a loving heart, a forgiving heart, your dreams become sweeter. You wake up more easily. Men and women and trans people will love you. (laughs) If the Buddha was around today, he would say that. (laughs) Angels and even devils will love you. If you lose things, they will be returned to you. That's interesting, if you have a loving heart. People will welcome you everywhere when you are forgiving and loving. Your thoughts become pleasant. Animals will sense this and love you. Elephants will bow as you go by. (laughs) I like that one. Four... Discover that it is not necessarily necessary to be loyal to your suffering. I love this one. Let's all take it in right now. Discover that it is not necessary to be loyal to your suffering. We don't need to be loyal to our suffering. Why? Disloyal to this person that doesn't even exist anymore perpetrated by a group or a person that probably doesn't even exist in that way anymore five understand that forgiveness is a process i loved aya ananda bodhi's getting to reality six this is the most profound one i think and this is absolutely true for the other half of my talk that i'm not going to get to And that is how to awaken joy. And that is set your intention. I love, you know, many of you have come up with your own mantras. You know, I got a Tisha's beautiful sayings that is up there. You know, it's actually up on a, I think a stone somewhere by one of the buildings. Just the intentions of you know, generosity and love and kindness and, you know, not needing the appreciation of others. You know, don't expect applause. I love it. And, you know, others of you have set the intention to relax and open and be present with whatever wants to be here. 
And we can set the intention to forgive, set the intention. May I forgive myself and all others. Actually, there's a very formal uh, forgiveness practice I'll tell you about it in a second. So set your intention. Learn the inner and, uh, number seven, learn the inner and outer forms of forgiveness. There are meditation practices specifically forgiveness, and I'll tell you about those in a second. And there are certain kinds of confessions and making amends. You know, um, some, um, there's some really beautiful African rituals about forgiveness that actually are done at, uh, I know they do them at Spirit Rock, don't they? But there is a way to bring ceremony to forgiveness and to asking for forgiveness and giving forgiveness. Number eight, start the easiest way with whatever opens your heart. Maybe this is blowing in a dog's face, you know? (laughs) Maybe this is letting the dog stick its head out the window. Whatever will soften uh, and bring ease. Number nine, be willing to grieve. And we've talked about that. You know, it doesn't mean, forgiveness doesn't mean uh, forgiving an offense or saying that an offense is okay. Absolutely not. It doesn't mean that at all. It means just accepting the common humanity that we're all perpetrators. Number 10, forgiveness includes all the dimensions of our life. It is the work of the body. It is the work of emotions. It is the work of the mind. And it is the work of interpersonal relationships. Um, uh, Number 11, forgiveness involves a shift of identity. I love this one. Can we not be victims? And then number 12, forgiveness involves perspective perspective taking yes and to realize you know I hope I'm not going to be offensive here but I sometimes use this term first world dukkha right I mean when I think of my suffering you know not that I don't have legitimate suffering of course I do but compared to what you know, our relatives escaping from Syria or in places where, you know, children are starving. Let's get some perspective. So what is the forgiveness practice? So why don't we all get ready to practice a little? Let's practice some. So we ask others for forgiveness. Let yourself remember and visualize the way that you might have hurt some others. Just for a second, see their pain that you might have caused them out of your own fear and confusion. And feel your own sorrow and regret. Sense that finally you can release this burden and ask for forgiveness. Repeat to yourself. Just repeat to yourself. For the ways that I have hurt you physically or emotionally, Please forgive me. For ways that I have hurt you by taking what was not mine. For ways that I have hurt you through my sexual misconduct. For ways that I might have hurt you through my harsh speech or lies. And ways that I might have hurt you when I was not heedful or through intoxication. Knowingly or unknowingly, out of my pain, my fear, my anger, and my confusion, I ask for your forgiveness. I ask for your forgiveness. Extending forgiveness to ourselves. Thinking about the ways that we have all hurt ourselves or harmed ourselves betrayed or abandoned, you know, our deepest aspirations or our values. Feeling the sorrow and remorse that we carry around for this sense of a self-betrayal. Feeling our own precious body and our own precious life. Repeat to yourself, 
for the ways that I have hurt myself physically or emotionally, for the ways that I have hurt myself by taking what was not mine, for the ways that I have hurt myself through my sexual misconduct, for the ways that I have hurt myself through my harsh speech and lies, for the ways that I have hurt myself through my heedlessness and my intoxication, knowingly or unknowingly, out of my pain, my fear, my anger, and my confusion, I now extend full and heartfelt forgiveness. I forgive myself. I forgive myself. And now for those who have hurt or harmed us, there are many ways that we have been harmed by others, abused or abandoned, knowingly or unknowingly, in thought, word, or deed. Let yourself picture and remember these many ways. Feel the sorrow that you have carried with you from the past. You can now release this burden of pain by extending forgiveness when your heart is ready. Now say to yourself, I now, I now remember the ways that others have hurt me physically or emotionally. I remember the many ways that others have hurt me by taking what I did not freely offer. The ways that others have hurt me through their sexual misconduct the ways others have hurt me through their harsh speech and lies. I remember the ways that others have hurt me through their heedlessness, through their intoxication and just madness. Knowingly or unknowingly, out of their own fear, their pain, their confusion and their anger. I have carried this pain in my heart too long to the extent that I am ready, to the extent that I am able, I offer them forgiveness. To those who have caused me harm, <clears throat> I offer my forgiveness. I forgive you, I forgive you. And if I cannot forgive you now, I set a strong intention to forgive you in the future. I forgive you, I forgive you. Let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.